The following sermon is from Grace Church East County. More information about Grace Church is available at gracechurcheast.org. Find your Bibles or your Bible app. And we're going to turn to the book of Isaiah this morning, or as my Canadian and UK friends like to say, Isaiah, and I feel myself wanting to say that more. We're going to turn to the book of Isaiah this morning, the ninth chapter. Emily's going to read our passage and pray for us, and then we'll hear the word of the Lord. Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they defied the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian." For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you were faithful to fulfill these ancient promises given to Isaiah in the person of Christ. Lord, you who are the light of the world, shine into our dark hearts this morning and help us to see you and know you as our wonderful counselor, our mighty God, our everlasting father, and our prince of peace. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Emily. So third Sunday of Advent, we've been preaching about the offices of Jesus for all. Let's remember what we're trying to do here, right? We're trying to remind ourselves of who Christ is, to sharpen our focus on this one person who had two natures, fully human and fully divine, and fulfilled these three ancient offices of prophet, priest, and king for us. We're, like Tab talked about on the first Sunday of Advent, we're trying to help ourselves take hold again of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus' birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his return. And so I think we have to ask, like, why do I need this good news about who Jesus was and what he has done? And in the chapter just before the verses Emily read for us, the prophet Isaiah talks about this this dark time is coming in Israel's history, this time of, he uses words like anguish and suffering and darkness. And I think if you're honest about life today, Don't we see that in the world around us? Author Fleming Rutledge writes that Advent begins in the dark. She says that 
unless we truly face the darkness around us and inside of us, we lose the true message of Christmas. It's emptied of its meaning. That good news doesn't matter. It's not hard to put language to the darkness we see globally, right? Christians brutally murdered around the world for following Jesus. Millions of innocent civilians dead or displaced in places like Yemen, Gaza, Eritrea, Ghana, and so many other places. How about closer to home? Closer to home in our our city, our state, our country, we see rising rates of suicide, drug abuse, loneliness. Sometimes though the hardest darkness to face isn't the darkness out there, but it's the darkness in here. Okay, it's the darkness of the anger and the selfishness that I had to fight with this week. Okay, the darkness of, that causes us to hurt and be hurt by other people. Now, at this point, you're probably wishing you'd skipped coming to church this morning. You're like, man, what a, what a downer of a way to start, Dan. But as Fleming Rutledge goes on to say, she says, the question that this darkness raises, are you listening, God? is perhaps the Advent question. And so many people in the world look around and ask that question. God, do you see what's going on here? And are you gonna do anything about this? We are waiting for you to act. And so the last two weeks, we've seen Jesus as our prophet, and we've seen him as our priest. And this week, we're gonna see Jesus as our king. And it's that office of Jesus as the king that is God's answer to our cries. Are you listening? God, will you do something about this darkness? The season of Advent is a season of waiting, not just a time of remembering something that happened in the past. It's, and what are we waiting for? We're waiting for the king. Okay, so this morning, let's take a look at Jesus the king in three ways, kind of three time periods, past, present, and future to help us see him more clearly this Advent season. So first, let's see Jesus as the promised king. Jesus is our promised king. Now, it might sound strange to be talking about a king. We're all about democracy these days. Monarchies are kind of a thing of the past, like even in Great Britain maybe. But I think God wants us to see and he wants us to feel that a king, that the king is who we most need to deal with what's going on in our lives. And there's, there's no way this morning that I can unpack everything the Bible says about what it means for God to be the king, okay? God, as king of our universe, the ruler of the world around us, can be said to be the entire story that the Bible is telling us. But particularly after the fall in Genesis 3, that idea of God's kingdom comes to mean something a little bit different, something a little bit more specific. Just think about Jesus' temptation in the desert after his baptism. Satan came to him and said, Satan came to him and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. See, there are parts of this universe, parts of this world that are under the control of forces hostile to God and to his rule. Not that God doesn't hold absolute authority and power, over every single thing he's created. Just read the book of Job to learn more about that. But on earth, he hasn't yet completed this work of redeeming, of transforming all of creation to what it was once was before we ruined it. 
God rules now. He has always ruled and he will always rule. But there's another sense in which this kingdom is a, a growing, a developing thing. And so this morning, as we talk about God's kingdom, what we mean is the areas of our lives and of this world where he has begun to transform and to redeem this world, what once was in rebellion to him. And so the scroll of Isaiah does have a lot to say. If you go back and read the book of Isaiah, it's gonna describe what this kingdom looks like. This kingdom of peace and harmony ruled by the prince of peace who governs with ultimate wisdom and ultimate justice. The book of Samuel tells the story of Israel's greatest king, David. After David is crowned king, he uh, looks around Jerusalem and he says to God, he says, I'm, I'm living in this great palace that I've built and your worship is going on in a tent that's hundreds of years old at this point. I'll tell you what I'm gonna do. He says, God, here's what I'm gonna do for you. I'm gonna build you an amazing house for you to be worshiped in just like I have. And God spoke to David in 2 Samuel chapter seven and he says, you know who I am, right? It's like, I don't need a house. I don't need a place to live in. Instead, here's what I'm gonna do, David. I'm gonna build you a house. Second Samuel, Second Samuel chapter seven, God promised David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, if we go on to read the rest of Samuel and the scroll of Kings as well, what we're gonna hear about is the nation of Israel breaking into two warring groups of tribes, northern and southern kingdoms. And by the time that Isaiah gave the prophecy, Emily read this morning, about 250 years after David died, the northern kingdom was, was years away from being destroyed, taken into captivity by the Assyrians. And the southern kingdom of Judah didn't have very much longer either until they also would be defeated by Babylon and exiled from the land. So why do we have this promise in Isaiah? What's it there for? What's it's there to give the people hope. Hope in a dark time where it looked like God's promises had failed. There was no more king on the throne, certainly not one from David's line. Isaiah chapter eight describes Israel's future, a future of rebellion, of, of rejecting God, of darkness and anguish. But, but chapter nine gives hope. Hope that one day a ruler would come and fulfill God's promise to David, which seemed so impossible. I don't want you to miss Isaiah's description of this son to be born in the passage Emily read. This is clearly a divine person. Isaiah calls him eternal father, calls him mighty God. These are words that are used throughout the book of Isaiah, throughout the Psalms that Israel sang to God to describe Israel's God. But at the same time, this son would be born. Somehow, he would be from David's family, pointing to his humanity. Somehow the person who would fulfill this prophecy would be both God and man. One person, two natures. Well, 70 years of exile go by, the southern tribes come back to the land and then they're dominated by one foreign power after another. There was never again a king from David's line ruling and reigning over Israel. And it looked like God's promise had failed completely. 600 years go by. 600 years. That's a long time, in case you were wondering. 
And then after 600 years, we come to the event that Sharon read to us this morning from Luke chapter one. The angel Gabriel appears to an obscure girl in an obscure town and says the most incredible thing. He told her that God was about to keep his promise. I'm gonna read Luke 1, 31 through 33 again. We're, we're meant to feel hope rising as we hear these words. You will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. I mean, can you hear Isaiah's prophecy and God's promise to David just ringing out in these words? Remember, we said we wanna see clearly who Jesus of Nazareth was and is. And this is as clear as it can be in the New Testament. In the Gospels, the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life, it is absolutely clear that Jesus of Nazareth, the boy born to Mary in Bethlehem of Judea, was without a doubt the long-promised king descended from David. Now, you might be wondering, so, okay, great. I know that Jesus is descended from David. He's the king. What, what does it matter? Am I supposed to do something with that bit of information? Am I supposed to respond somehow? And I think that there's a group in Matthew's gospel that show us how we're supposed to respond to seeing Jesus as the promised king. Matthew chapter two, these wise men from far away show up in Jerusalem asking, where's the one who has been born king of the Jews? For we've come to worship him. That's our response to seeing Jesus as the promised king. It's to worship the king. One of my favorite movies, The Fellowship of the Ring, director Peter Jackson dramatizes this scene between three of the main characters. There's two very, very powerful, very uh, elegant and, and rich characters. There's Boromir of Gondor and Legolas the elf. Then there's this, this third guy in this conversation. He's in plain clothes. Nobody really knows who he is or what he's doing there. This guy named Aragorn. Well, Boromir asks him, he says, why is somebody like you part of this great council? Legolas, Aragorn's friend, jumps up and says, oh no, he's your king. You owe him your allegiance. At which point Boromir says, oh, Gondor has no king. Gondor needs no king. Now, if you, like me, have watched our 10 or so hours of the extended version of this, or you've read the books, you know that Aragorn, despite his appearance, is indeed the true king of Gondor who is going to free the peoples of Middle-earth from the enemy Sauron and bring this glorious age of peace and prosperity. Now, why am I, why am I bringing up that scene from Lord of the Rings? It's because each one of us have said those words that Boromir said. The essence of sin is us saying, I don't have a king. I don't need a king. Okay, whenever we reject God's authority, we say those words again. And, and friends, all of the suffering, all of the darkness in this world is a direct result of me and of you and of every other human being saying, I don't need a king, I don't have a king. And, and I think it's important for us to ask, as, as uncomfortable as that is, um, where is that attitude at work in my heart this morning? Or yours, I think you should ask yourself, let the Holy Spirit speak to you and just where am I rejecting God's authority in my life today? Where, where is there a command that Jesus has given that I might not want to be, want to be following? We, we need to be aware of that temptation and lean on the Holy Spirit every day to help us submit ourselves to the rule of King Jesus. 
If you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, I'm, I'm so grateful you're here. Um, I appreciate that you've chosen to spend time with us this morning. You might not have known it when you came in, but God is calling you. He's reaching out to you with a call this morning to bow the knee to this son, Jesus. He's being patient with you, like he is with all of us, giving you time and opportunity to turn away from that rebellion and instead worship Jesus, that application we talked about. Worship Jesus as the true king of your life. If you've got questions about that, I'd love to talk to you after the service. Any of us here could explain that. Okay, so that's looking, that's looking to the past. Jesus is the promised king. Well, now we want to look at the present, okay? Second, we want to see that Jesus is our reigning king. Jesus is the reigning king. When he, when he became an adult, he began his public ministry walking around Israel talking about the kingdom of God, proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here, it's now. His closest followers, including the apostle Peter, confessed that Jesus was the Messiah, the anointed one, the king. And in the last days of his life, Israel's religious leaders accused him of being a king to give the Roman authorities a reason to execute him. At his trial, at one point in his trial, Jesus is standing there before the Roman governor, Pilate, and Pilate says, well, are you a king? To which Jesus responds, my kingdom is not of this world. Hours after that conversation, Jesus was dead with a sign over his head that said, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. So was he the king or wasn't he? Was he God's son destined to sit on David's throne? I mean, when he died, it looked like God's promises had failed again. Think about what his mother Mary, who was standing right there watching him die, must have felt she heard Gabriel's words to her, God's promise to her, and yet her son is there dying. What is she thinking? And then three days later, Jesus appears to them very much alive. And just before ascending to heaven, he made probably the clearest statement to that point of his kingship. Matthew chapter 20, it's a verse we're all familiar with. What did Jesus tell his disciples? He said, all authority, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, who can say that they have all authority? Only the king. Only the king gets to say that. This year, um, we saw something we hadn't seen in about 70 years. We saw the coronation of the new king of England. Um, Charles III was crowned the king in a lavish, history-filled ceremony, and that's when he officially began to rule over the United Kingdom. So if a coronation is when a king begins to reign, we should ask ourselves, when was Jesus' coronation? I mean, if he's reigning now, certainly there was some sort of ceremony or something, right? It was his resurrection. Friends, his resurrection was Jesus' coronation. Commentator Robert Letham writes, Christ's own resurrection marks the commencement of his reign as king, a reign which is to culminate in the total vanquishing of death and the resurrection of his church in the power of the Spirit. Jesus rising from the dead was the equivalent of God putting a crown on Jesus' head. Okay, once the Holy Spirit filled Jesus' followers in Jerusalem, they started to talk about him as the king, started to tell people this is really the one who fulfilled God's promises. Okay, listen to just one example from Peter's sermon in Acts chapter two. Peter told the people, being therefore a prophet, he's talking about David who was writing in the Psalms. 
And knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus. And then in Acts chapter 13, the apostle Paul basically gives my entire sermon today in a lot fewer words. It's a great read. Now, you you might be asking yourself, if you look through the New Testament, you don't see the word king a whole lot in the epistles, in the letters the apostles wrote. But over and over again, the Bible's writers call him Jesus Christ or Jesus the Christ. And Christ is not his last name, it's a title. It means anointed one. It's the Greek word for the Hebrew title Messiah. Every time we read Jesus Christ in our Bibles, you could just as easily say, King Jesus, or Jesus the King. The New Testament writers all honored Jesus as the King who is ruling today. Don't miss that as you you read through the New Testament. But it can be pretty hard to see if we're honest, how is Jesus ruling and reigning today? It certainly doesn't look like it, like this, this mighty God, this Prince of Peace is ruling now. I think that's because his kingdom is very different than what we would expect. This kingdom does not look like a kingdom of power and glory and triumph. In fact, I've I've heard it referred to as an upside down kingdom. Just think about the Beatitudes. Think about how Jesus in the Beatitudes described his followers. Poor, mournful, persecuted, meek. But, But understanding that we live in a very different kind of a kingdom can help us see the reality of Jesus' reign so we'll be looking for it. It helps us see our mission as a church and as his followers more clearly. Each local church is an outpost of Jesus' kingdom right here, and each Christian is called to follow the commands of our king. But how is Jesus' kingdom advancing? It's through his church. It's through us here today, through local churches and through individual Christians, as we teach others about him, as he changes hearts, and as we help people give their allegiance to the king. It's not through a political party. It's not through legislation that his kingdom advances. It's not through any other form of power and government that this world uses. No, as we make disciples and as the Holy Spirit changes hearts, he is changing lives, our lives, the lives of our families, our neighbors, our friends. As we grow to follow and serve the king, his rule is becoming ever more real in the world and in our lives. The kingdom is coming. This is is great hope for, for your family members, for parents, for children, for our neighbors, for our mission as a body that our reigning king is changing lives now and will continue to do so. So Jesus is reigning fully over his church today as we give him our allegiance, but the completion, the fulfillment of that kingdom when all things are made new has not yet arrived. That day is in the future. Right now, we, we live in this time between, this time of the now, but not yet. Yes, the kingdom of God has begun to arrive and it is unstoppably advancing, but there is still darkness in us and around us, is there not? And so that's why we need to see Jesus thirdly as our returning king. See, Jesus is our 
returning king. In the season of Advent, particularly with Christmas, is so easy to be, oh, we're remembering Jesus' birth. We've got our manger scenes. We've got all those things that are Jesus in the manger. The season of Advent for the Christian church is not one primarily of looking back. It's a season of looking ahead, anticipating Jesus' second coming to earth because it's, it's that second coming, it's his return that will finally bring his kingdom in in its fulfillment that will mark the complete fulfillment of God's promise to David. That promise has begun to be fulfilled, a promise from thousands of years ago, but it will finally and completely be fulfilled when Jesus comes back. It can feel, doesn't it feel though like we've been waiting a long time? I mean, think about if you're waiting for something that you really want that really impacts your life, how long does it feel like you've been waiting for that? Days, weeks, months, years? It's really easy to get discouraged and go, okay, this happened a couple thousand years ago. Like, it, is Jesus really coming back? Like, come on now, really? We're not the only ones who've asked those questions. In the very first generation of the church, people were asking that question. Is Jesus going to come back? They were, they were skeptical. And, and just think about that for a minute. Where do you look around in your life and think, God, you haven't kept your promise. God, you've, you've failed. You haven't kept your word. Friends, it's okay to ask God that question. It's okay to take your discouragement, your doubts to God. Deep disappointment, hard suffering, those can, those can narrow our vision. It can challenge our faith. But listen to the words of the apostle Peter to his flock, to the people who are asking that same question. He said, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. Yeah, it seems like we're waiting a long time. But God's not slow like we think of him as being slow. No, according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This is where we need both directions of Advent, the past and the future. This is why celebrating Christmas and the coming of Jesus as a baby in the manger is so important because if God kept that promise, he's gonna keep all of his other promises as well. It's like a down payment. Jesus' first coming is a down payment on all of God's promises for the future. Jesus will return one day to earth in power and in great glory because God has already kept a promise that he will come to be born in David's family, okay? Seeing with faith the return of King Jesus will help give us perspective on its current suffering, the suffering of the world around us, and it'll help us see that this darkness will not last forever. It will not have the last word. Even now, King Jesus is driving back his enemies, gaining victory after victory until the last enemy, death itself, is destroyed. How do we respond to seeing Jesus as the returning king? I think it's simple, it's this. We hope in him, hope in the returning king. So we started talking today about the darkness and the suffering in our lives and our neighborhoods, our world. Yeah, there's beauty. 
there are certainly good things in our lives, but on the whole, life is just hard, isn't it? It is. Where are we to find hope in a hard life? And consider for a minute this morning, where, where do you invest your hope? Where do I invest my hope? I'm using banking language there. Money and pleasure and medical technology and, and human leaders, there are lots of places to invest our hope. And like, like inexperienced investors in the stock market, I change where I put my hope from minute to minute to minute. Whatever seems the best thing, whatever seems the nicest thing, and all those things are gonna fail to actually fulfill my hope. Like a poorly chosen stock, I'm gonna lose my entire investment if I hope in those things. At the end of the day, we can only hope in one person, in one event to bring light and put an end to the darkness. Our only hope is in the return of King Jesus. And that's why we've been studying the book of Revelation on Sunday mornings, is because the whole book of Revelation is the story of King Jesus defeating his enemies and establishing his kingdom of righteousness and peace for all eternity. It's the story of how God's promise to David is finally fulfilled, how David's greater son takes the throne and reigns forever. Just listen to Revelation chapter 11. You know, by the way, one of the last things Jesus says about himself in the book of Revelation is that he is the seed of David. One of the very last things he says in the New Testament is he connects himself all the way back to that family and that promise. Listen to Revelation chapter 11. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That's our hope. We finish with a final quote from Fleming Rutledge's book, Advent, The Once and Future Coming of Jesus Christ. That quote's at the bottom of the notes page. If you grab one, I give it to you. Listen to what she writes and let this vision fill us with hope as we close the service this morning. She writes, to be a Christian is to live every day of our lives in solidarity with those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. But to live in the unshakable hope of those who expect the dawn. I love that phrase, the unshakable hope of those who expect the dawn. It's the unshakable hope, Grace Church, of the return of the King. I want to invite Scott to come back up Service can prepare us the Lord's Supper. I do, I do want to thank Scott and the music team. We basically sang the entire sermon this morning. I love that. Love that so much. And I appreciate your work, Scott, and, and your thoughtfulness in putting that set together. Just as we finish this morning, let's just be quiet for a few minutes and respond to God's message this morning. Maybe there's an area the Spirit's convicting you where you need to worship the King, where that's your appropriate response. Maybe you're most aware that your faith is struggling. You need hope this morning. Let's just take a few minutes and respond to the Holy Spirit, and then we'll pray.
Lord Jesus, thank you for revealing yourself to us as our king, for calling us to worship and for giving us reason to hope. As we celebrate your first coming, Emmanuel, we long for your return. O Prince of Peace, our elder brother, return soon, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church East County. Please find us online at gracechurcheast.org if you would like to find out more about us.